Hello and welcome to Out of Office. My name's Johnny Caldor and this is a podcast where I get to take walks with interesting people in media and find out what makes them tick. This is episode six, which I recorded with James Hughes a few months ago when we were all in lockdown. Lockdown number one, that is. Uh, James is president and CEO at FIP, the International Network for Global Media. We chatted largely about the future of the consumer magazine business and how the need to diversify is becoming even more important these days. We also touched on live events and how they can survive in a world where large gatherings can't come together. Prescient, given he's just managed one of the biggest online events that the industry has seen to date, uh, the FIP Congress. And I recommend you heading to the FIP website to have a look. There's loads of really good content on there. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Speak to you on the other side. Okay, so here we are. Thanks, James, for joining me. Um, I suppose we should have been walking somewhere right now had the situation been different. Yeah. Um, where would we have been? Well, we were going to go, I think we were going to meet at our offices at Bank in the city, which um, uh, was where I first started working when I started working for, for Barclays Bank many, many years ago as a graduate. And uh, we would have gone on a little tour around some of the places that I would have uh, worked and and lived uh, in the city in the in the kind of late nineties, but obviously now we're stuck at home and, and uh, I'm in Wales and you're in London or somewhere and uh, yeah we'll have to we'll have to make do with a virtual tour. I know, I know. Well, at least we've got something to drink, so we've got some sort, of, and we're out of the office, which I, I guess yeah. is is the whole goal of this podcast. So we got we got part of the. Um, Part of the mission accomplished, definitely. And it's the second time. It's the second time we've spoken today. Well, not quite spoken, but we were both on the same yes conference call earlier. Yeah, it was very interesting that with with uh, the big issue editor and the PPA and Barry and all the rest of them. That was that was good. That um, enjoyed that a lot. I mean, also good uh, good for me to keep an eye on what other other organisations are doing in terms of webinars because that's um, something we've been doing a lot over the last few weeks. It's just interesting to get other perspectives on how people approach them. But I thought that was a really, really good session. Yeah, it worked well, didn't it? Yeah. Really Do you good. know, it's interesting. Um, so the, the tortoise thinkings. Oh, yeah. Which, if, um, which are normally physical events, as you, as you know. Um, they've, they've gone digital only over the last few weeks. And this week, there have been... So there was one on Monday with John Ronson, oh, yesterday yeah. with John Ronson. And there were almost a thousand participants. Yeah, I can believe it. I, we're finding the same thing. The level of engagement online, whether that's just because people haven't got anything to do, or whether because <laughs> they they genuinely feel the need. I hope they genuinely feel the need for for this kind of engagement in a time when we're not seeing people. We're finding exactly the same thing. I mean, we've run two of these webinars so far, and you know, if we run a physical event and we get uh, even a free one, uh, and we get a hundred people, we're, we're doing pretty well. Apart from the big yeah. ones where we get several hundred people, um, we had one hundred and twenty-five on the first one, and three hundred and seventy registered on the second one. Which for a, for a B two B, you know, inwardly focused media event is pretty good. And you know, we've got another ten of these lined up over the next few weeks, and they're getting well into the hundreds of people uh, uh, coming to them. So there's something about that format, that webinar format now in this period when we're all at home that seems to be resonating with people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I guess it's it's so it's so low friction 
So that's yeah. one thing. So it's, it's very easy to join. And I, I think the difference, I don't know if it's the same for you, but the difference I found, particularly last night with the John Ronson thing, was like genuine, genuinely making time for these things. I mm. think somehow in, in, in the other world, when we were kind of running around, I don't know, from office to office and office to home, it, it, didn't, it somehow seems much easier now to fit a webinar into my life. I don't yeah. know why. They're quite low. I think they're quite low demand in terms of your time as well. I mean, they can sit yeah. there in the background, almost like a sort of friendly radio program, uh, because the visual element, let's face it, for most of them is not particularly important unless you're showing slides. Yeah. It's it's the audio element element that's important. We've we've learned quite a lot doing these over the last few weeks. And one of my colleagues put it best. He said, um, the realization we've had is that it's a talk show. If you just do it as a, very much as today's one was, if you just do it as here's a bunch of slides, click, 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 people kind of lose a little bit of interest. But if you treat it like a talk show and try to have a genuine dialogue, and yes, by all means, chuck a few slides up when 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 it's relevant, but treat it like a conversation, then it almost becomes like a sort of Radio 4, you know, program sitting in the background that you can listen to. And, and, and you can, I found myself today during the, the big issue one, doing a few other things and, you know, writing up some notes and stuff. But every so often I would stop and, and, and pay closer attention to what was being said because there was an element that was particularly um, relevant. So I, I think there's, I think we're learning a lot about that format, but it's quite a, it is quite a human format, I think, more so than a, mm. than a physical event uh, where you can be quite distant from the stage and, and, and the goings on. You feel a little bit more part of it. I think you might have hit the nail on the head there, actually, because if you think about one's expectation of, of a webinar, or at least over the last few years, it is that. It's, a, it's like a slideshow. You sit there quietly and, and you get presented to, and, and yeah. they are pretty dull let's be honest yeah and, and 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 these ones are they are you're right they're very different maybe that's the big difference yeah i, I mean, mean the, it's the same gold rule applies as to a live event right just don't be dull and and you know you've got to make sure that your format allows you to do that so you did one um last week didn't you, you had your innovation mm. in media mm. webinar how did that go it was very good actually yeah high 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 number of attendees very high degree of engagement i think that's the other thing we find with with webinars is that the uh, there's that there's less of that self-consciousness of sticking your hand up in a physical environment and asking a question i mean we got 33 questions which i think you could run an entire two-day conference and not get 33 <laughs> questions in real life uh, in physical yeah. life but uh, a good high degree of engagement some really good interesting lessons i mean john wilpers who's the author of the report is a great presenter anyway so he was able to keep the thing barreling along nicely um and it's a sort of highlight of phipps year producing and, and editing and, and publishing that report so um yeah it went very well very pleased with it and we talked about this last time we were chatting actually so the report was published pretty recently right just a few weeks ago or a couple yeah, of weeks ago that's right yeah right in right in the middle of you know all of the goings on what to what extent if at all did you have to uh, edit it, change it, you know, because of what's going on in the world right now? Well, we, we talked about it quite a, quite a lot. We, de we debated whether or not we should kind of tear it up a little bit and, and, and rewrite it, and we thought not, and we thought not really for, for, two, for two reasons. Number one, because uh, we've got to remember that in time this will pass. You know, this, this is not a – I don't buy into this. This is going to change the way the world works forever. Um, I think it will change some things. 
but I don't think it will be quite as radical. These things are never as radical as people think they're going to be. We are, as humans, social animals. We thrive in our interactions with one another in, in a physical environment. And I think that will return, and it may even return stronger than it did um, before the, the, the lockdown because we'll appreciate um, the value of that. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that a lot of the themes that are in the book are not really dependent on uh, there being a time of crisis like now or there being some kind of physical environment. They're very much about how you approach your business from a, from a, a philosophical point of view in the way you look at different themes. The, I mean, the overriding theme of the book is about, for this year, is, is human capital and how you manage people. What more relevant topic could you have in the current environment than how to recruit and retain the very best people? Uh, you've got an environment where you're asking people to take sometimes substantial pay cuts. You're asking them to work in unfamiliar and sometimes challenging environments. Uh, one of our members made the point to me you've got to remember that it's all right for the likes of us who've got nice houses, big houses where we can sit in a separate room and work and, you know, the kids are somewhere else in the building, we can't hear them. They've got salespeople who may be in their early 20s who are house sharing with four other people and they have a small bedroom that's their own and that's it. So they're sharing broadband, they're in a cramped environment, they've got a load of clients who are perhaps saying no to them a lot. You as a manager, as a, as a leader, have got to think very carefully about how you you manage those people and look after their mental welfare and look after their kind of morale so that they get, don't get disheartened in, in what can be a very challenging environment for them. So all the stuff about human capital management, I think, is is is, is really important. Um, and then the second big overarching theme of the book, as it has been for, for many of the recent editions, is diversifying your revenue streams. And again, what better illustration could you have of that than the current situation where if you didn't diversify away from some of those traditional revenue streams, you're in a very difficult position right now. So I think that led us to the conclusion that the themes are relevant regardless of, of what's going on in the world. And, and I hope that the readers feel the same. And do you, do you hold up, I think you do as part of the report, you hold up examples of people who were doing this particularly well mm. in the revenue diversification um, bit who are the standouts for you right now well you've got different companies doing different aspects of that well i think if i if i without wanting to pick any individual company out because uh, you'd have to go and read the report to find those examples uh, <laughs> the if i take some very broad examples the newspaper industry which everybody thought was going to be the most badly affected by the flight from print to digital has actually responded the best in terms of understanding the value of their journalism and being prepared to, to put a concrete uh, price against that. One of the things we found in not only in the innovation report, but we do a quarterly digital uh, subscriptions report. One of the things we found in that is that the, the trend of readers getting used to paying for quality content is now universal. It's happening in every country. It's happening at scale. You can make a living off it. Um, and it's something that, frankly, the magazine industry needs to look at very, very carefully. There, there's a bit of a call to action there for them because they've been very hesitant to do it so far. 
I'm hoping that one of the, the things that will happen as a result of the current crisis is that they will take the plunge and say, okay, now is the time to do this. If we're, never, if we're not going to charge for content now, we're never going to be able to charge for it. Um, so that the newspaper industry, when it comes to charging for content, a lot of lessons that can be learned there. I think the, the, the B2B industry, if you look at one of the other major diversifying uh, diversification elements of revenue pre-crisis was events. B2B, the B2B industry has done very well at that. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned from that. Now, the difficulty there, of course, is that we don't know how the events industry is going to bounce back from, yeah. from the crisis and, and, and what, that, what that involves. But I mean, throughout the book, there are great examples of companies doing things in the way that they, uh, they manage their staff, recruit and retain staff, and in terms of the way in which they approach um, the monetization of their business. And, and it's, it's I, I would say that... that you can find in every country pretty much an example of good innovation in all of those fields. The one exception and probably the one rallying call that we would give to the industry where we're falling short at the moment is in sustainability. We did a chapter on sustainability and innovation and sustainability. And beyond one or two notable examples, it was very hard to find any systematic evidence that the industry was taking sustainability seriously. So I think when we come out of the other side of this, um, that's something that, that we as a, an industry body will be looking to do to, to, to issue a challenge to the industry to be more focused on sustainability. Yeah. And do you, as you look around the world, do you, do you see that certain regions are, are ahead in terms of innovation and certain regions are lost in the past still? Yes. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, the, 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 I think the overriding lesson about the, the, the globalization of our industry is that whereas once upon a time there was a way to run a media product in a certain country that perhaps wasn't applicable anywhere else, those, those boundaries and those divisions are disappearing very, very rapidly. As every media company becomes a media company, in other words, they try to do everything, every aspect of media, um, so the way in which they do it is starting to converge. Uh, in other words, the way that a media company is, one, is run in Brazil is not that different from the way a media company is run in South Korea. Uh, now, that wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. What that means in turn is that the lessons you can take from country A are applicable to country B. I mean, I, you know, I love the example that the New York Times um, sent people to learn from the Scandinavian newspapers in how they do paywalls because uh, they're the market leaders in that. Now, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, would they have sent a bunch of print newspaper executives to learn how to make a newspaper from a Scandinavian newspaper? Probably not. But the globalization of our industry means that success in any one market can be replicated anywhere else and those lessons are becoming transferable. So the, the, there are undoubtedly still pockets holding out, uh, you know, large parts of the American publishing industry are still dependent on this advertising rate-based driven model for a very good reason which is that it's still very profitable for them so 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 they should carry on but i think at the same time most of the smart ones there recognize that that's not going to last forever uh, and and they are taking substantial steps to diversify their businesses at the same time and do you think i mean going to going back to that example of let's say for example the regional press in the u.s yeah and the current situation and what is a almost complete annihilation of and sorry i'm gonna have to start that again 
So, yes, yeah, so going back to the example of America and, and what's happening at the moment with almost a complete annihilation of, of the print yeah. product for, for many of the regional press and therefore all of that ad revenue with yeah. it. And, and bearing in mind, a lot of those businesses are purely ad revenue based. What's going to happen to them? I mean, are they going to survive? How, how, how do they get out of the situation right now? Well, it's a, that's a very good question, a very complex question with many aspects to it. I mean, I think the first aspect to it is really around making the tech giants, by which I mean primarily Google and Facebook, accountable for what they've done to that industry. We are, as an association, very critical of their efforts to fund, and I'm putting my fingers up with imaginary quotation marks when I use fund, journalism in markets, which they've been doing at the moment uh, with these kind of pitiful grants of a few million dollars to newspapers to sustain journalism. I mean, this is a farce. These companies have stripped billions of dollars out of the advertising base of these local newspapers and other media businesses across the world have given virtually nothing in return other than a distribution platform that they seem to believe we should be able to monetize, even though we can't because their rules prevent us from doing so. Um, so, so I think that's the first thing. And uh, the encouraging thing about that is that there are significant steps now, I think, or there were prior to the current situation, to begin regulating these businesses effectively. I mean, they are almost completely unregulated at the moment, and that is not a sustainable mm. situation. And if you ask any trade association in the media space anywhere in the world who's speaking honestly, they will tell you that that is not a sustainable situation. These these, these companies are not our friends. Um, the second element to that, I think, is that there does need to be a mechanism for funding journalism, both in local communities and nationally, that ensures that it has a kind of thriving future. And, you know, journalism is the sort of safeguarding of democracy. And at a time when democracy is under threat in a number of countries, it's never been more important to get that funding correct. I, I was at an event in January in, in America. It seems incredible to say now, um, the idea of traveling anywhere, uh, which Carol Cadwallader was speaking. And, uh, and she made the excellent point that there needs to be some way, as, as we drift towards everybody being a freelancer, there needs to be some way that freelance journalists are able to pursue those stories that go after the powerful, uh, that go after those with influence without the fear that they'll be financially ruined if they, if they pursue it. Um, and that's an excellent point. I mean, we do need to make sure that something like a Panama Papers could be published in the future. Uh, and I think that's incumbent on us as an industry to collectively come up with ideas for funding that. But, you know, we're being asked to do a lot in a time when almost all of our revenue has been taken by two or three large companies that are not facing the same level of scrutiny that we are. I mean, you end up with this farcical situation where magazine company mergers in two major countries in the last six months are being scrutinized by competition authorities, the same competition authorities that, that don't take any action against the dominance that Google has in the ad market, for example. Uh, and that's not sustainable. And so as an association, what... Kind of what level of access do you get at Google, at Apple, at Facebook in order to lobby on behalf of uh, your members? Well, look, I mean, it's like any business. As individuals, they're all very nice people and they're all very reasonable people. But I think we should be clear that 
when it and the two and the two businesses do have slightly different flavors to them. If I come to Facebook first, Facebook is the people we know at Facebook personally are are very nice people, and they will happily come and speak at our events, and they will happily come and speak at our board meetings if they have done so. But it's clear that that organization despite its claims to the contrary, is a pyramid. It's a pyramid with two layers. There's Mark Zuckerberg and possibly Cheryl uh, at the top. And then there's everybody else. And everybody else doesn't really have the power to say or do anything of substance because that rests with the, the chief executive. Now, they wouldn't be the first and won't be the last business to have been run like that. But I mean, the degree of insight that we get beyond what they're prepared to say in a kind of press release sort of way is not that great. Um, uh, other companies uh, in working individually have had greater levels of engagement with them, usually when they're getting involved in some kind of project with them. But on an industry-wide level, um, we, get, we get some access, but we don't get answers to the critical questions. Google is slightly different. Google does have more of a debate going on, I think, internally about the extent to which they have a responsibility to the industry. And they have made some, again, in January at the event I was at, um, Scott Galloway's professor, a very well-known author and and professor at NYU, who writes very well on these issues, described it as Google having a group of flat earthers who believe that everything should be free. And another group who understand that that's completely untenable and that there is an enormous, what we're seeing is this kind of internal debate within Google being writ large in their actions externally. And I think that's, that there's some truth in that. Uh, we have to hope that the, the flat earthers lose, that they understand that they have a responsibility to share some of the enormous um, uh, control that they have of, of advertising and distribution with others. And I, and I think that will happen. Um uh, he also made the excellent point that what might provide pressure on these companies is the, is, is the very thing that gave them their riches in the first place, apart from their dominance in the market, which is their flotation on the stock exchange. And the investors will start to say, well, hang on a second, aren't you worth more if you behave in a certain way? Aren't you worth more if you're not vertically integrated? Um, you know, why does it make sense for Facebook to own WhatsApp? Why don't we spin those off as two separate companies, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th- I think there are forces coming to bear on those companies that will, will have a bearing on that. But, um, uh, you know, we should be clear that a bit like Amazon and their interaction with the grocery industry, we are not, um, we're not a significant force. We're not a significant factor for either of those companies, I think. Mm. Um, well, I can I can also imagine that for all of the for all of the three of them, that they would much rather deal on an individual basis with each of the media companies. Oh yes, yeah. you know, yeah, they can exert much more control. Yeah. But to that extent, I can imagine it must be harder for you to have an influence over them because they they probably just want to bypass you and talk to the. The yeah, director. absolutely. There is a real divide and conquer thing. And we've seen this a few times. I mean, you know, whenever they launch, and we, and we sort of get a little bit cross as industry bodies with some of our members, because whenever Facebook or Google come along with some whizzy new product that they want everybody to try, they go to a couple of the usual suspects and bung them a few quid in order for them to, to, to get on board with it. And usually what happens is we as an industry end up investing a lot of money with the promise of monetization at some point that 50% of the time doesn't materialize because the platform then loses interest in the product because it didn't work. Um, 
So I think I think there's a there's a but but the flip side of that is of course you you can only do that so many times before people start to learn and I think we're learning as an industry that we need to be a lot more focused on it. The um, the copyright directive in the EU does seem to have some momentum behind it from a, a media industry point of view that we will use this as a mechanism to get Google to start paying us for for the content that they use on their site. Um, uh, that's very early days, but I get the sense that that momentum is really starting to happen. And if and if and if something like that happens, then that could be the the opening of the floodgates to say to to those platforms, well, look, you know, there's precedent for this now, and we need and we need to and we need to live up to that. Yeah. And when you you know you look at other um, associations, and I know the it's not a complete overlap, but someone mm. like Inma, for example, mm. do you? Do you collaborate with those with those guys at all? Yeah, where it makes sense to do so, we collaborate with with all of the associations that are out there. I mean, we are all fundamentally have the same purpose. We're number one. We're all not for profit, which helps. You know, we're yeah. not all there thinking about our, our bottom line and our bonuses and our share options because there aren't any. Um, uh, secondly, we do exist in our remits, respectively, for the benefit of the industry. So we have to take decisions for the benefit of the industry. We were proposing this year to run our, our Congress in collaboration with another trade association. We're trying to do the same thing again next year. Um, we share information on on what's happening in our respective markets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we consider ourselves kind of brother and sister organizations uh, we're there fundamentally at the service of the industry, and so it would be it would be foolish of us to to act in any other way. I think. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, um, something I want to ask about FIP itself. So, my mm. my personal experience, which is limited, I have to say, was my early, yeah, my my early experiences of FIP were that it was a very large-scale international licensing conference, or at least that's yeah. what congresses tended to be. Yeah, and you've you've talked a little bit about how you know the industry has changed on a global scale uh, in recent years. What does FIP? How has FIP evolved as as far as you can see it over the last few years since you took the helm, and, and where do you think it's going? Yeah, I mean, I probably should put it into a bit of context. I mean, I mean, it is a very old organization. It's ninety years old has been going since before the second world war has always been very emotionally uh, very internationally focused sorry um, originally started as as a french franco spanish um, collaboration between publishers in those countries always had a very strong emphasis on networking and cross border networking <laughs> and really uh, existed in its current form since the early 2000s the late 90s and early 2000s driven absolutely by the boom in licensing now it's not talking out of turn to say that the licensing business is not the scale that it once was or certainly not the traditional licensing business but going back to what i said earlier about the the globalization of the industry and the convergence of business models across markets well the flip side of that is is it's never been easier to do business in another market than it has than it is today so that aspects of our of FIPS uh, purpose and remit that focuses on internationalization, on networking across borders, and crucially now on knowledge sharing has never been more important. And, and we kind of see ourselves really as being still at the forefront of, of, of that aspect of, of the media industry. We have a great opportunity now to really 
cement our position as the leading association in the field because we have these connections across the world, because we're able to share all this knowledge around the world, and because that's something that will be on everybody's radar. I mean, if you're a media business today, anywhere in the world, and you have a website, you are an international business, because a proportion of your traffic will be coming from outside your home country, whether you like it or not. Uh, the only question for you as a media business business is, do you want to take advantage of that? Do you want to monetize that? If you want to monetize it, then we can help. Um, and uh, going back to the, the what we said about diversification of revenue, this is another way to diversify your revenue, is to, is to take advantage of that international footprint that you have. And what about, so the, I think the other big thing, certainly from my perspective as a supplier, mm. the big advantage that you offer someone like us is, the ability to meet people and you know get yeah. to know people and 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 your events have been extremely helpful at doing that. Mm. Um, I guess we've already had one event uh, postponed, which was the Digital Innovation Summit uh, yeah. in Berlin. What? How do you see? I mean, do you think you can run an event and and really make it work? Not. So I, I get the. You know, the whole kind of exchanging of ideas, I can completely see how, how you can do that. But how on earth do you create that that opportunity for people to just to meet up and get together and hang out and have all of those kind of, you know, those chance meetings that you get when you, yeah. when you all travel to you know, a foreign city and get together for a few days? Well, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard. Uh, that doesn't mean it's impossible. I think... It's very much like uh, workflow. Uh, you can't take what you do in the office and do it at home. Similarly, you can't take the way you run a physical event and do that virtually because that's just not going to work. So, yeah. <coughs> pardon me, you've got to look at the technology that is available to allow people to network and to socialize, both formally and informally, in a virtual environment and say, how do we take the best examples of those and apply them to the networking field. Um, I think it's possible. Uh, we're going to make an experiment later this year. We're going to uh, run a virtual networking event. We've got one piece of technology already in place to do the formal meetings, which is a, a thing called deal room that we've used before. And we're looking at the moment for a way to provide a informal social hub virtually for the rest of that time where people can drop in and out and chat and, you know, maybe pick up some of those chance meetings. We think that content is probably going to be a way that you enable that. If you provide some small five-minute content pieces around that as, an, as, a, as a, a driver, as a hook for people to come and hang out in that space, that might be a way to, to encourage that. But it's going to be a question of experimentation. We, we It's new for all of us. Um, the great thing at the moment is that this period of lockdown is driving an enormous amount of innovation in the platforms. So, you know, uh, we've been using uh, Zoom a lot, and we know what the uh, the increase in volume of Zoom usership has been over the last few weeks. I can imagine that they must be getting millions of product improvement ideas uh, that would have taken them six months to generate in a, in a normal time frame in the space of two weeks. Now, that'll be the same for everybody who's got any kind of, of, of uh, software development or any kind of um, uh, platform out there. The key for us is just to pick them and, and try them. Uh, and I think the absolute key thing for us is to show to the membership that we're not giving up. You know, we're, we're determined, as we have done in the knowledge sharing space, to find a way to make this work for you because business doesn't stop just because we can't meet each other. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I, I, I guess as I look at, so your revenue streams, mm. if I've got this right, are your membership, you know, kind of membership dues and people like us, suppliers paying to get access to your membership. I guess they're the two and delegates, major de- 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 delegate delegate fees as well. So so it's yeah. roughly it's roughly fifty fifty. About half of our mem- half of our revenue comes from membership, and about half comes from the the revenue that we generate around events. Now, the revenue that we generate around events clearly has a significant cost attached to it. Um, yeah. So in a virtual world, a lot of that cost has disappeared. The price point is therefore lower. But I think from a financial point of view, we do see a way that we can uh, make uh, a kind of sufficient contribution to FIPS financial future through virtual events. Um, but of course, we recognize that all of that depends on on the the benefit and the success that people get out of those things. It's no good us just sitting there and saying we can charge everybody 400 quid. They've got to get leads in the case of suppliers and technology partners, and they've got yeah. to get knowledge yeah. in the case of, of media industry delegates. So that's the big part of our focus is to say, okay, what's the let's not look at it from a negative point of view. Let's not say, what are we losing by not having a physical event? Let's say, what are we gaining by having a virtual event? We're gaining a much greater degree of insight into the way that people interact with us and our content and our network as an organization, because everything you do virtually is tracked, time spent, registration, attendance, delegate profile, all that kind of stuff. That's a very effective lead generation tool, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of stuff like that going on where we're, we're trying to spin it on the positive side and say, what can we take from this that's different and more positive than the physical space and apply to these kind of things? Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean I'm, I'm fascinated to, to hear what, what you're going to do for suppliers like us, funnily enough, because if I, th- I, I think of our, you know, our marketing spend over the course of a year, a yeah. really decent chunk of it is flying to and attending and having stands at yeah. events, you know, and, and particularly, you know, for us in the US, we, we, we spent a lot of money last year doing that. And the first event of the year that we would normally go to is just coming up, actually. Yeah. It's called the, this, the uh, City and Regional Magazines Association Annual Conference, mm. which... Um, it's yeah, it's a decent sized event, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of potential customers there, and and yeah. we are now just we're trying to get our head around how how do we engage with that right? Because there's going to be a bunch of webinars, seminars, various discussions, and so on. Um, but we're not going to have a stand there. No one's going to walk past it. We're not going to have beers. We're not going to. I mean, it's it's, no. and so we're going to have to think very differently about how do we get involved in in you know there's obviously trying to get on the agenda but i i i think that only gets us so far um you know so what can we do and and actually we already started a couple of months ago now really upping our digital marketing spend and mm. effort mm. knowing knowing that we're basically going to lose a, a, a huge funnel um you know yeah. into our business this year so it, it will be fascinating for us and lots of people like us, I guess. But the problem with get... that, I th- the problem with that, Johnny, I think, as a, as a single supplier, is that the top of your funnel will be a lot smaller because because the base that you're able to engage with as an individual business is smaller than it would be through an association. My my advice for people in that situation is 
a variation of the same advice we give to members uh, when they join. The more you put into a trade association, the more you get out. And, and that, I think, is never more true than now. So if you're a supplier or you're a technology partner and you want to meet people, get on the phone to the associations that you're members of and say, look, we need your help. We want to, here's some targets, here's some countries or some markets or some types of businesses that we want to target. How can we get ourselves in front of them? Those trade associations, FIP included, will have fantastic ideas about ways in which they can do that, whether that's a personal introduction, whether you do a, a private meeting on Zoom where you've got you know some really interesting person that you've got to come along and talk that the CEOs want to hear from. Because at the end of the day, what's this all about? This is about getting leads that you can convert into business, right? And yeah, I think I think as a as a trade association, you've got a big funnel. You know, with a trade association, you've got a funnel in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, rather than the low thousands or the hundreds. And you've you know they've got a lot of competing demands for their attention. If you get on the phone and contact them, and you and you kind of get yourself in front of them, you will get those leads because they will do something for you. Um, uh, you will get, definitely get out what you put in. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's quite nuanced. It's, it's, of course, it's leads, but it's also a little bit of brand marketing. It's mm. a bit of a, a bit of relationship management. It's, sure. it's just there's a whole. I mean, that's why I'm 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 really looking forward to to seeing what you know what you guys um, yeah. and a lot you know a lot of other uh, event organisers come up with because clearly it's going to be part of the mix. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I have to say, Deal Room, um, I, 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 Deal Room has worked surprisingly well for us in the past. I have to say, mm. <laughs> because you know, as a piece of technology, it's quite simple and quite basic. But as a, I, there's something about it, yeah, that it, I have to say, is unparalleled in any other event that I've been to. And and this was DIS particularly last year in Berlin, where. Mm. You know, you have a, you have this tool to kind of make contact with people. Okay, there's plenty of those. People accept meetings. Yeah, there's plenty of those. But they all turned up. It was it was yeah. remarkable. You know, it's incredible. Um, it, yeah, it worked really really well. Uh, and and Erdal 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 Klinich, the guy who runs it, based in Finland, um, is there's a great example of what I was talking about earlier. He didn't sit around when the crisis happened and think, oh, I've got this platform. He'd already started developing you know, the platform to take account of this. So he's put now webinar functionality and video functionality into Deal Room so that now you can have a face-to-face -face meeting via video using the platform. The, yeah. the, 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 you know, that's a very entrepreneurial and innovative guy because they're a small business and they want to do well. For us, the Deal Room platform is fantastic and it's fantastic for formal meetings. What we're looking at now is how do we do something less formal and how do we do the kind of casual uh, passing trade element of it, you know. So, uh, what's the the uh, the environment that allows people to to drop in and out of a conversation with somebody like yourselves uh, when they're already there as part of a festival? Some of that will be branding around the stuff that we do, but some of it will have to be within the context of other socialising and networking tools that we put in place. Yeah, I mean, I I love the idea of. The, you know, if you if you take that element of these webinars, the the friction free element of it, I love the yeah. idea of maybe, you know, you're creating this event as a as a place in time, yeah, not necessarily a physical place, 
but, but turning it into a festival of ideas where, for example, you know, people like us, our content is somehow sewn into the fabric of the event, right? Yeah. Whether it's you've got you've got a kind of a hub, which is the event, and you've got all these little side rooms where people are giving demos and giving talks and so on. And I can really, I can really imagine that when you give people, because a nice thing about a an event, a conference, is people, I guess the unique thing about an event is people a lot time to think about something that goes beyond their day-to-day yeah. job. That's, yeah. that's the beauty of a conference. You're pulling people out of that context and you're giving them um, the luxury of being able to think slightly differently and then putting them in front of all these different ideas. So if you can replicate that, yeah, that's um, right. that would be fantastic. And I can, yeah, I can, I can genuinely see value for someone like us who's trying to get access to that audience. Yeah, that's right. And I, th- and, I, and it's, I think it's just also about thinking outside the box when you do this stuff as well and just saying, nobody knows how to do this because it's not really been done before. So let's just think about all the different ways that we might. And some of them will work and some of them won't. But within that, we'll hit upon one or two that work really, really well. And they'll be the things that drive the awareness or the leads or whatever it is that you're looking to do. But it, but it's, I think the absolute critical thing is not to sit there and go, oh, my God, the world is terrible. We can't do these physical events. That's the only way we could possibly survive. Well, no. I mean, you know, we've got, we're in this environment. We're going to be in it for another 12 months. We've got to figure out a way to make this work for everybody so that, so that you guys can do the business you need to do so that we can get the knowledge out in front of people and, and, and the kind of connections in front of people that they need to do their jobs. And uh, and um, and do that to the best that we can, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Okay, I've got a, a slight change of tack, and I mm. I don't want to go. I don't want to take the conversation backwards, but I do want to go. I, I want to talk about Apple a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think Apple News Plus in particular. I mean, both Apple News and Apple News Plus, but it's an environment that I think we're all very interested in. Mm. Um, and it's an environment that we all have very little data about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we hear a lot of stories, and you know, uh, the US it's been it's been up and running for some time. Even in the UK now, it's been around for for long enough. Yeah. I would imagine for your members to have a good sense of whether it's working or not. What what can you share with us about how publishers are feeling about the success or otherwise of Apple News Plus? It, I mean, before we get onto that, isn't it funny how a company as strong and as good and, you know, as, as wealthy as Apple and as good as they are at creating products, they don't get content. They're having the same issue with Apple News Plus that they're having with Apple TV Plus, which is that they, uh, it just doesn't seem to get traction as they are with Apple Music. They don't seem to get traction. I, I, the, the, the only answer I can give you about Apple News Plus is that, it comes into our conversations so rarely with publishers that there isn't really insight I can give you on it because it's a virtually completely irrelevant part of most people's businesses. Virtually, um, it is certainly not the it is certainly not the cure for all ills that that was trailed when it was launched. Uh, look, I mean, I'm perhaps exaggerating slightly, but I think you've got to put it into the context of the average publisher's business. The average publisher has a multitude of different ways that they can distribute their content. Each of those distribution channels has a different objective attached to it. Apple News Plus is merely one of those distribution channels. It has sometimes a direct revenue um, objective attached to it, sometimes a traffic driver or an awareness driver uh, uh, objective attached to it. Is it 
any more significant than any of the others? For some people, yes. For the big ones, probably quite a lot. I think the New York Times and people like that do very well out of it. But the New York Times and the ones that are doing well are only one or two or three organizations out of the hundreds of thousands of organizations that are in our industry. For the average magazine company, is it any more significant than any of the other platforms? Not that I'm hearing. Um, uh, that might just be because they're not telling us, but I think I'd be surprised at that. I think it's viewed in that revenue line that every publisher has as other. You know, they have an other line that where their um, a lot of their digital distribution revenue and cost goes into. Uh, what I mean by that is it's not a primary channel yet. And so, conversely, do you see do you see more direct to consumer business models? Um, popping up all over the world right now. I mean, direct to consumer, as in, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, no, absolutely. If there's, a, if you as a media business don't have direct to consumer as part of your plan somewhere, then then you, you you really need to look at yourselves because that's that that model is, to my mind, the only one that is going to provide scale in revenue terms and in data terms in in the long term. I mean. Whenever you go through any other aggregation platform, even the very benign ones that give you access to the data, you still don't control the experience. You still don't get all the data. You get most of it, but not all of it. Um, and when you're on somebody like Apple, you don't control the experience at all. You're completely at the whim of their dev teams. And uh, as far as I understand it, you get very, very little data. Um, so I, I think publishers now want to control the relationship with the consumer. They want to control the data. They want to control the revenue streams. They want to realize as much of that revenue in their business as they can. And you can't do that through a, through a third-party platform, um, yeah. or at least, at least not through Apple anyway. There may be other third-party platforms that are more, more amenable to do that. And it's the classic trade-off. It's the same trade-off we've had for a long time. The only players that have got scale are the ones that don't want to play nicely. Um, and maybe that's why they've got scale. I don't know. But if the, the magic bullet out there is a scale aggregator or a scale distributor who's prepared to play nicely with everybody and prepared to accept that that means that they make a bit less money because I think that would lead to a much healthier ecosystem overall. And do you, as an association, do you get a lot of new entrants coming to you, you know, completely new brand, no legacy, and they just want to know, okay, what do I do next? Do you, do you get a lot of that right now? We get we don't get a lot of that. We get a lot of people going back the other way. So we get a lot of new platforms coming to us and going, we're thinking about operating outside of our comfort zone. Uh, and their comfort zone is usually pure play digital. So when they start to think about e-commerce or internationalization or print or live events or whatever, then they'll come to us and, and, and interact with us around our knowledge and our networking. Um, I think it's... I would say, though, that I think there's much less of that siloing of businesses now. So we don't see quite so many businesses now who are just one thing. Everybody is trying to, everybody genuinely is trying to do everything, even the ones that have set themselves up to be something else. Something else. You know, if you look at a, a Vice or a BuzzFeed, they operate in uh, lots of different verticals and lots of different revenue streams, and they will come and interact with us uh, on many of those revenue streams, so I, I don't see it. I don't. I wouldn't phrase it quite the way that you phrased it. I would say that the difficulty for us is is trying to find some way to self-identify our marketplace. 
because the logical conclusion of everybody doing everything is that everybody's the same. Uh, so how do you how do you identify as part of a group if everybody was the same? Imagine if every human being looked the same, walked the same, talked the same. You wouldn't be able to divide the world into groups. Now, people like groups. They like to associate with others, um, with other companies that are like them. And we're finding at the moment the difficulty is, is, is understanding the characteristics that allow them to form groups like that. They used to be very easy in the old days. You had television companies and radio companies and cinema companies, and magazine companies and book companies, and they would cluster together in associations and do stuff together. Well, now there's no such thing as a book company or a magazine company or a TV company or a radio company. Everybody's just a media company. So how do you distinguish between media companies when everybody is pretty much the same. The, the line that we're using at the moment is broadcast. And we, and we say, if you're a broadcaster, by which I mean a traditional linear broadcaster in television, radio or cinema, we're probably not for you. But if you're not a broadcaster or not primarily a broadcaster, then there almost isn't a business out there we can't help uh, because there will be some aspect of your, of your business that we can help with. So something that I was talking to Barry about um, when we spoke on actually on this podcast was mm. the way that success begets success and so he was talking about how you know within within a publishing company you would launch a you would launch a, a title like Empire for example and, and that would do incredibly well it would become a cash cow for the business and that would fund the next title which would then hopefully succeed which becomes a cash cow and, yeah. and um, provides you know, the necessaries for the next business to launch and so on. And, and, and you get to this situation where you're, you're growing title by title and you're growing this, the value in, 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 the, in the publishing company. In a world where we're not seeing so many new titles being launched, or at least mm. not that I'm seeing, and actually we're seeing titles being shuttered. Yeah. How, I mean, where's that going to end? I mean, you know, if you took that to the inevitable end, there are no brands left, which clearly isn't going to be the case. But... How 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 does a media company sustain the need for growth? Yeah, in a world where we're not we're not launching all these new brands, you know, every six months. Well, it, it brutally, if you look at the last twenty years, if you're a traditional media company, you're a lot smaller than you were twenty years ago. So you're in a position now where you haven't been able to deliver a growth for a long time. But that's something I think that is changing. How are, you, how are you going to deliver growth in the future? You go to where the growth activities are. And the growth activities, and I think the difficult thing for media companies is that the growth activities are changing almost every year. Um, four years ago, three years ago, it was video. Everybody had to have a video studio because there was the promise of growth and monetization around that. We all spent a ton of money putting video studios in. Uh, and then we discovered that the monetization aspect wasn't quite as rosy as we thought it was, but not for everybody. Some people make a very decent living out of it. Some people have taken those skills and transitioned them into the more traditional broadcast world. Uh, so if you look at a Hearst or a Condé Nast or a Vice, they make a ton of money now out of selling shows and formats for shows and even producing shows for traditional broadcasters. So for them, that wasn't a waste of money. That was a very good investment. They've accessed growth that way. Uh, at the moment, it's voice. Everybody's chucking a ton of money into voice because there's a growth in audience, uh, whether that's in podcasting and voice services or in voice services like Alexa. Um, again, the monetization piece is harder, but we think it will be there. 
uh, and that's a potential for growth. Uh, digital subscriptions is a growth field. I mean, there is massive double-digit percentage quarterly growth possible in digital subscriptions if you do it effectively. So there are pockets of growth out there. Um, the trick, I think, as a business is, is is you've got to change your mindset. And your mindset's got to change in two ways. Your Your life cycle is shorter. So instead of having the old publishing model of you launch a magazine and a couple of years later it's profitable and then it generates huge profits and you use that to launch another one and so on and so forth for, for 30 or 40 years. Now you need to respond in a few months and you need to be prepared to either take the benefits of that success a few months later or a few years later or just as importantly to, to not flog a dead horse to, to give up on that bet if it doesn't look like it's going to work and to do that in a way where you just say it's a learning experience fine we move on to the next thing um, but I think the second thing is you've got to be adaptable and flexible in your skills and your mindset as a business and say today we have to learn how to do video tomorrow we have to learn how to do voice and that's not scary that's exciting that's a challenge and it's a skill set that we're all going to learn and we're just going to do it quickly um, yeah. because we have to and, and I think the businesses that do well are the ones that that are in that mindset. The businesses that do badly are still in the mindset of we launch a magazine, we wait and see if it works, and we're going to apply that methodology to a website or a whatever service it is we're doing. Um, but I think the vast majority of those businesses have disappeared already. So, so tell me, I'd love to hear more about the um, the publishers who are in double digit growth through digital subscriptions. Can you give us a, a good example of, of, of someone who's doing really well there? Right? Yeah, uh, if you give me a minute, you might need to edit, edit the gap out while I find the data. <laughs> yeah, of course. Let's see now. Okay. Okay, so if I look at the, uh, we prepare, as I mentioned earlier, this quarterly snapshot of the digital subscription uh, marketplace. And if I look at that, um, uh, because we have data now going back over a couple of years, we can start to get a view of what the kind of average quarterly growth rate was for some of these brands. And you look at the top ones, the ones that are notable that you will have heard of. Uh, the New York Times grew yeah. over the course of, uh, well, since we first started collecting data on them in the beginning of 2018 to the most recent time at the end of 2019, they were growing at more than 5% a quarter in terms of the volume of subscriptions that they were adding. Um, and they and they are the biggest in that field. So they didn't have by any means the fastest growth rate. Um, yeah. If you look at a brand like The Athletic, so The Athletic, which was you know in America, launched very successfully in America a few years ago, is now in the UK. Okay, they're in the field of sports, so they're going through a difficult time at the moment. But apart from that, they went from uh, a reported 100,000 subscribers in the first quarter of 2018 to 600,000 subscribers in the third quarter of 2019, which is something like a 35% quarterly growth rate. Now, the caveat on all of these figures, of course, is that unlike um, print figures, they're not audited and we're relying on the publishers uh, releasing um, these figures and, 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 and verifying them themselves. But in aggregate across the market, there are many instances of double-digit quarterly growth uh, for, for publishers. Uh, and the ones that aren't doing double-digit are doing high single-digit. 
And, you know, that's a kind of growth pattern that we haven't seen for a very long time in any of the operations that we've got. Uh, let me pick out another example here. Der Spiegel in Germany, very famous uh, brand in, in the German media market, uh, 22% quarterly growth over the last two years. So each gro- each quarter adding 22% more. That's, uh, that's audience growth or revenue that's, growth? That's paid digital subscriber growth. Wow. Um, and now generating... I mean, it's difficult to tell because we, we have to rely on, on some of the published subscription rates, which obviously vary depending on how you approach the brand. But they could be generating in excess of $10 million a year in their in their digital subscription revenue. So, you know, these are substantial sums and, 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 and there are substantial growth rates. And we see that in, you know, on the list on the, in the report. The next uh, issue of the report will be out in a couple of weeks' time and we're going to do a webinar on that. But you'll see in the in the data... But there are examples on the list from the US and the UK, of course, but also from Germany, from Japan, from Norway, from Australia, from Argentina, from Sweden, from France, from Italy, Finland, etc., etc., Slovakia. There isn't a market in the world almost where we don't see digital subscriptions as a significant factor. So, you know, the, the, the growth is there. The growth potential is there. I think we've just got to reset our expectations about what running a media company means in the 21st century in terms of the scale and, the, and, and and some of the the ways in which we were able to take advantage of the enormous money that we were making in advertising in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And do you see in those figures, is does it skew more towards news media than consumer magazines? Yes, it does. At successes? The, it, it absolutely does at the moment. It, and it skews that way, not because news media is necessarily inherently more uh, successful, but simply because most magazines haven't done it yet. Uh, and the ones that have haven't told us how well they've done. So if you think about the examples of paywall uh, in the magazine field, Condé Nast very publicly has, has put paywalls in uh, in most of their brands. They haven't yet announced um, uh, the, the detailed figures for that. And fair enough, that's probably a little bit early. Um, beyond them, there are some of the usual suspects like The Economist, which of course does it brilliantly well. Uh, but, you know, the average magazine brand does not have a paywall at the moment, even the specialist ones. And that's something that's got to change, frankly. Um, it, it is an absolutely crucial factor in the future of those brands to have a, a direct-to-consumer revenue model. Yeah, I guess there's a, there's a, there's a sense, whether it's true or not, that's that to to create news media content is a more difficult pursuit and therefore it's more defendable from amateur content creators versus the mass market consumer magazines who are you know it's easier for someone to sit in their bedroom and write a fashion blog than it is to yes but i should be clear that i think i'm not talking necessarily about mass market consumer magazines i think i think they have a different future I'm talking about the enormous base of specialist magazine content that there is mm-hmm. out there, the enormously engaged audiences that they have, the uh, the the kind of reputation and investment that they have made in generating quality content over the course of their lives, the trust that readers have in that. They're already monetizing. Well, in, in the old world, they were monetizing that extremely effectively with high cover prices for their magazines, with events attracting large numbers of people, again, paying a premium, et cetera, et cetera. The, the logical jump for a, I don't know, let's pick a small example, a railway modeling magazine, which will have a lot of, or it will have a relatively small in absolute terms base, 
of enthusiasts reading it, but they will be highly committed, uh, high value, spending a lot of money on their hobby to ask them to pay another six quid a month to, to subscribe to your website digitally doesn't feel like it should be beyond the bounds of possibility. Um, and, 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 you know, may even be to your benefit because then they will feel as though they're part of that club, uh, even more so than they do already. Um, so I well, think we see, a... go on, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, we see that for sure with, you know, as I look across our publishers, the niche publishers, um, are doing very, very well. You know, it's very, it's steady growth. People are willing to pay yeah. for the content. They're highly engaged. They're deeply loyal. They're advocates for the brand. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that it's it's that 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 middle market, that, you know, which is is the slightly worrying, slightly worrying sector. It, it is, and 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 you know, you you have to you have to be honest with yourself as a content producer and you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, is my content unique? Is it high quality? Is it something that cannot be replicated by anybody else? Is it something people would be willing to pay for? And if the answer is no, then your business model is going to be very, very different and may not be as long-term as as the, the business model of a high-quality, unique specialist content producer. Now, that's not to say that you don't have a business. It's just that you have a very different type of business. Um, uh, and I think we will see in this, you know, one of the factors, one of the features of this current crisis is that it does seem to be accelerating trends that were already happening. And, and, and we will, I think, start to see very quickly what the implications of that are for some of these brands over the course of the next few weeks. So then, so then maybe as a parting question, where do you see this going? So if you kind of, and mm. I, I don't mean, you know, the, the the current kind of global pandemic. I mean, I mean, based on the statement you just made around if you're if you're a mass market title, you know, you've got to think slightly differently about your business. So where do you see that all panning out? Let's say twelve months from now, where print has been heavily affected yeah. by what's going on, it's going to continue to be heavily affected. Yeah. What you know, what what does the industry look like? Um, in May 2021, in your mind? I think it will be an industry that's more focused on that direct-to-consumer relationship. And I think, um, you know, what are the indicators that we're seeing at the moment? We're seeing an increase in subscription levels, both in print and digital. We're seeing an increase in web traffic. We're seeing an increase in these kind of things, digital uh, events, whether in webinars or podcasts or, or you know, gatherings of some kind in the digital space. All of those things are increasing the direct relationship you have with your consumers. I think what is going to be more adversely affected is the indirect relationship with consumers through advertising and through other people's distribution platforms, particularly physical distribution platforms. Some of that will be a function of what the retail environment looks like when we come out of this, which we can't predict at the moment, but it clearly won't be as healthy as when we went into it. Some of it will be a function of uh, the decline in, in in readership because people haven't been able to go and pick up a copy of a magazine at a newsstand. And if they live without it for six weeks, maybe they can live without it forever. Um, I think uh, it, it won't be dissimilar in terms of the step change that we saw in 2009. With the, with the 2009 financial crisis, we went through that, and I was at a publisher in those days, we went through exactly this. You know, a large number of people stayed away from the newsstand, stopped buying magazines, and that became their new habit. Don't buy magazines anymore. 
but what was the sector that held up robustly specialist interest and, and niche? So I think, um, uh, you know, I, 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 our organization represents members from across the spectrum and one doesn't want to be too negative about some of the prospects for them. But my, my hope and wish is that if you run a mass market celebrity focused weekly title, that you use this break as an opportunity to think about how you can create a new model for that in the future, because you will have people who are loyal to your brand, you will have people who want to engage with your content. But maybe after this crisis, they'll, crisis, they'll want to engage with it less in print. So how, how do you do How do you do that? How do you start to create some of that in a unique way that allows you to preserve all the investment you've made in that brand over a long period of time? And who do you think the winners and losers going to be in the next oh. 12 months? Oh, I, I'm, you should never ask me for tips like that. I'm the worst man in the world. Yeah. To, if you go to the you go to the horse racing, I can tell you who the loser is going to be every single time. Um, I, th- I I think in very very broad terms, the the winners are going to be anybody who has adapted very very quickly to the current circumstances. So if you've shown your audience that you're prepared to be adaptable and flexible and try new things and keep them engaged then you're probably going to do well because you've built up some goodwill with an audience uh, over a difficult period. If you've just tried to carry on doing things the same way or you've given up and gone, we'll just park this until we all come back to life again, then I think you're in trouble. Um, I'd be very surprised. Some of those brands that have said we're stopping printing for the time being, I'd be very surprised if if some of those come back to print again, for example, because, uh, you know, once you go out, it's very hard to come back. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to know, is there, is there a shining light that you look to and go, God, you know, they've just, they got it right. They are amazing. As a business, I, I think, yeah. um, I think there's a few. I mean, I think, obviously, The Economist, I mean, every single time we run an event when we're lo- or, or when we're looking for an example of best practice in the industry, you can turn to The Economist. They are very, very good at what they do. They are very smart people. They realized very early on that people buy the brand, they don't buy the format. So they're perfectly comfortable charging people the same amount of money for a virtual product as for a physical one. And that's yeah. philosophically the right approach. And they've got all these kind of clever business extensions, uh, you know, the intelligence unit and the kind of insight and research that they do for companies like so. It's a brilliant business. I think... Um, if I was to look at a more kind of uh, entertainment focused space, my kind of personal loyalty would have to would have to say Immediate Media, the business I used to work for many years ago when I was at the BBC, who, you know, as well as being a fantastic place to work, seem to have that. They seem to have the ability to create special interest verticals that nevertheless have a lot of scale, and that's a real trick. You know, if you've got something like a BBC Good Food, which is a you know. A, a, a title about food and cooking but has this you know 26 million connections with the audience in the uk that's a pretty special combination i think uh, so they've done a very good job at, at, uh, at building a business that i think is robust and adaptable enough to to come out of this crisis in a very in very good shape but i but i'm a, you know that's very naughty of you johnny i'm an association head and i mustn't play fa- <laughs> I, I mustn't play favorites i must absolutely say that that i love all of our members equally and uh and i hope that they all come out of this uh, healthier than they went in oh i love i love the fact you singled out the economists because they also make very very wise technology choices oh um, which, which platform would they be on then johnny 
Yeah, well, you know, only the best, only the best. Well, I, th- I well, think look, we, I think I think, I think you're, al- you're allowed to do a plug like that, given that it's a it's your podcast and and b because of the the great work that you've done for the for the big issue which we heard this morning, which I know that a lot of people will be very grateful for. And and that we're an hour and six minutes into the podcast, which means no oh, yeah. one's listening at this point anyway. No. <laughs> no. I was going to say that uh, tube, tube journey's finished, but of course they won't be on the tube. Yeah. Well, look, I really appreciate your time. It was it was great chatting, and um, my pleasure. I'm. I'm I'm looking forward. I, I'm genuinely looking forward to, to to seeing what you come up with for the um, for the events. You know, towards the back end of the year, we will definitely be involved. As you, that's know. great. Good to know. Um, yeah. But thank you again, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Thank you. And there you have it. Thanks again, James, for his time. Um, I've got to admit, actually, the first time we recorded that, I screwed it up. So we had to record the whole thing all over again. So thank you so much, James, for your patience with me. Um, As I mentioned at the start, if you go to the FIP.com website, uh, you can see a load of great content from the FIP Congress, including a sneak preview of our very own 2020 State of the Digital Publishing Market Report, um, in which we got to interview about 40 execs from across the industry, both news media and consumer magazines, about what's keeping them up at night and where they're focusing their effort in the coming year. It was a really interesting time, actually. The report's going to be um, coming out in about four weeks' time, so so probably towards the end of October. And actually, I'm thinking I might just do a special podcast on it in the coming weeks um, with a guest, with one of the people that we spoke to um, when we were pulling the report together. Anyway, watch this space. Hopefully more about that coming soon. Um, And that's it. Hopefully see you soon. Thank you.